0: You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I am going to be your cavalierly diagnosing host, Abraham.
1: And I'm going to be your overlapping diagnostic
0: criterion host, Shane. Awesome. Comorbid. <laughs> That's, That's me. That's me. So we are a psychology podcast. We like to talk about all things psychology. One of those things is how we describe a state of being as categorically problematic, potentially.
1: (laughs) That's a way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. We as human beings like organization and organizing the world around us. So it would make sense that we have this particular document to organize that information in some way.
0: We do. We love that sort of stuff. As humans, not just as a podcast. Now, what I'm going to ask that you do is if at the end of this episode you decide, hey, these guys are all right, then I want you to please, if you have a moment, go leave us a rating somewhere. Click those five stars to make you feel all warm and fuzzy inside, and we'll be super stoked that you have done that. If you have a little extra time, you can even leave a review. And if you'd like to support us financially, you can join us on Patreon. There you'll get access to the like. Probably 20 minutes of extraordinarily exciting banter that we spent before we hit record on this episode, as well as the uncut version of this episode with our flubs and gaffes and laughs and inappropriate jokes that we take out. (laughs) You also get notes. There's all kinds of stuff. You get all kinds of stuff by supporting us on Patreon. So you can go there and find out more about that. And then, of course, subscribe if you haven't already. And Mm -hmm. you'll always catch our new episodes, which is great. So that's who we are to get started. But as I said, we're talking... About the DSM,
1: We certainly are. And boy, is there a lot to unpack with this one.
0: Yeah, it's fun. It's interesting. This is sort of the history and evolution of the diagnostic and statistical manual for mental health disorders. This is sometimes referred to as the psychological Bible. We really like calling things Bibles.
1: <laughs> yep. And unfortunately, this one doesn't have a, you know, revelations chapter with dragons and wizards and stuff. So, you know, we're, we're missing out, unfortunately,
0: with this one. Yeah, they really, really missed the mark with calling something a Bible. If you're going to call something a Bible, at least include Armageddon. This one doesn't have that. Jeez. I know. They used to, and they took it out. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> anyway, this is a reference book of codes and criteria for officially diagnosing mental health conditions, as I said, to categorize an experience as being either pathological or not, more or less, and whether it meets the clinical criteria for being called the diagnosis. And that's how you sort of show up in the world, right?
1: That's how we arrive here. But, you know, an official diagnosis with a DSM code is required oftentimes for billing for services for that disorder. So it's also helpful for conducting research, helps to communicate across professionals, can sometimes indicate prognosis and informed treatment, and can help people feel better about having a label, which is an interesting phenomenon in itself. Labels themselves and naming things are a very fascinating thing.
0: You know, we talked about, names and what is in a name and people's names and and why naming things is important in a previous episode. But we do have a plan to eventually address this, this phenomenon of how having a name for something can be very comforting. A name for a diagnosis, a name for a a condition, a name for a group of people, whatever it is. We really, really like names as a species Yes, in the language that we use. So I think it's interesting that something to talk about in the future. And actually, sort of following on what I just said, there are going to be so many references to previous episodes throughout this one. I'm actually going to put in the show notes a list of the episodes that we reference. I didn't even include uh, the reference that I just made to names, so I'll have to add that to the list. But <laughs> But there, there are a lot, so there might be periods in which we're talking that you want to go back and check those out. I'll have those links in the show notes.
1: Awesome. I love it. So for this episode, we're going to try to tell this in as much of a timeline as possible. We might jump around a little bit, but for the most part, the way this is organized is one of our historical dives, kind of like when we talk about lobotomies and deinstitutionalization. Yeah. This is going to follow that same kind of format. So we're really excited. But I think before we get into that, we should probably... Uh, well, I don't even think we need to do anything before. We can just dive
0: right in, right? So let's talk about ancient history. Are you cool with that? I I like it, yeah. Ancient history meaning (laughs) (laughs) pre-2010. Back when Sidekicks existed and you could
1: customize your webpage on MySpace.
0: Yeah, maybe pre-iPhone or something. (laughs) (laughs) No, ancient history in this case meaning the pre-1700s. So we're actually going back a couple hundred years, a few. (laughs) So the idea or the experience, the fact that there are mental health disorders that's been around as long as people have been around. Like as long as there have been people, there has been diversity in their range of experiences, some of them being potentially difficult to manage.
1: Yeah. And although the context of the world we live in has grown infinitely more complex, the range of conceivable mental health issues has also grown more complex in tandem. So th- things have just gotten weirder and, and human beings have also gotten more complex as a result of that, too. So,
0: yeah, our culture and our technology and everything have shifted so substantially that the amount of experiences that you can have has grown with that the shifting context.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, human beings is a, a small group organism. of suddenly connected to 7 billion people. That's got to be a little bit of a, a psychological strain, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Hive mind, if that mind was punching itself repeatedly.
1: <laughs> so many, if not most, of the kinds of problematic mental health experiences are part of being human and thus have been around and been more or less known about for as long as we have been humans. Now, neurodiversity is part of the human condition. Can you imagine a world without it? It would be it would be really kind of bonkers. It'd be bizarre. It'd be very strange.
0: Like I wonder if there is like neurodiversity in ants. I'm thinking about the quintessential example of an organism that sort of operates mindlessly as if every individual is just an extension of the colony as a whole and is therefore disposable because they all sort of follow this sort of the same. Hive mind sort of mindset. And like, that's essentially what would be the human species if we didn't have neurodiversity. Yeah. One of the things that makes us special, I think, is the fact that we're, that we have a neurodiversity, is that we're not all just of the same mind and the same brain. We have a lot of variation in how we show up. And I think that's an amazing thing to celebrate. Yeah. I think it's absolutely wonderful. All right. So, how to talk. About these mental health conditions, this neurodiversity, that's not been around systematically, at least not as as long as the fact that those conditions has occurred. Obviously, that's something that we had to more or less develop. And having that systematic way to categorize mental health conditions, as we mentioned before, can be very beneficial. I mean, this helps people who are suffering from this, helps the families of people who are suffering from whatever their diagnosis might be. It, It can be helpful for doctors to do treatments because just imagining, for example, you had someone who today, we might call something like depression, go back way before that was something where there really was a clear name or an understanding of what that was. They might say, okay, there's clearly something going on here. What we should, what we should do is dunk this person's head in ice cold water repeatedly for seven hours and that will fix them. And we'd <laughs> yeah. say like, mm, maybe don't do that. Yeah, or they'd say like, it. you know, we need, we need to bleed out the bad thoughts. So we're just going to open up a vein and let it all flow out. And I'm like, no. Don't do that thing they need to keep the blood inside people <laughs> yeah that's that's the best place for it to be. <laughs> yeah that's where it wants to be So we've tried to categorize mental
1: health disorders for some time across cultures around the world but today we're going to focus on the attempts around the DSM. That's going to be our primary focus because that seems to be kind of in the primary lexicon within yeah, at least Western
0: psychology so pre-1700s we're now moving into sort of 1700s 1800s era here. To start to describe, in the United States, the first attempts to categorize these disorders. And the first sort of systematic attempt in the U.S. occurred, interestingly, as part of the United States census. This is the people counting program that we do every 10 years to see how many people there are. Ah. And the first time that there was any sort of attempt to even delineate the fact that there was something you might call a diagnosis was around 1840. Okay. And the way that this was done is someone who's dressed very sharply from the government carrying their briefcase, walks up to your door, they knock on the door, depending on who answers the door, they would then ask you how many insane or idiot dependents live in the house. Mm -hmm. First time this question had appeared on the census. And these terms were not defined, mind you. They were not saying, like, by idiot, I mean this. They just said, how many insane or idiot dependents live in your house? It's just sort of a you-know-it-when-you-see-it type phenomenon, <laughs> type observation, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And again, like this kind of depends on who answers the door. Like, if the woman answers the door, they're like, excuse me, ma'am, is your husband home? I'd like to ask him <laughs> how many idiots or insane dependents you Or if have. she
1: says, oh, he's acting like an idiot right now, all of a sudden now you've
0: got an entirely different census report. Exactly right. Exactly right. Like This is a household full of idiots. And so this was obviously problematic. These terms are not ones that we use anymore. They weren't defined at the time, but that's what it looks like initially when they first trying to categorize some kind of mental health disorder in a way.
1: So a few more categories started being added to the census over about four decades in the U.S. until the 1880 census. There were now seven categories about which you might be asked to classify people living in your house. Melancholia. Monomania, paresis, dementia, dipsomania, and epilepsy, and this is according to the APA 2021 information that we were
0: able to grab. Yeah, sort of a history on on the DSM. Again, with all of those that you just listed, there were no definitions. It was up to you, and, and honestly this is this is the same for doctors at the time. Just they just calls them like they sees them. Uh-huh. like uh-huh. someone comes with the problem, they're like, "Oh, you've got monomania, you've got paresis." And they said, "How do you know?" And the doctor replied shut up i'm a doctor <laughs> and that was how that exchange always went uh-huh yeah a little wild yeah so this is this is 1880s no definitions no diagnoses no anything really but this is the first time that this showed up was part of the census all right side note an important thing you might be thinking well you guys did this whole thing talking about mental health hospitals and people being hospitalized for it and you're absolutely correct Just because there were not diagnoses did not mean that people were not being hospitalized for their mental health disorders. In fact, going back just a little bit in history uh, to where we were just at, 1800s, as early as 1752 in Philadelphia, the Quakers were the first Americans to endeavor to treat, quote unquote, treat people with mental health disorders by placing them in a medical hospital well, in the basement of a medical hospital
1: Uh, in shackles. yeah
0: chained to the wall yeah not great not great not a great look not great but that's that's where it was initially yeah, so yeah. And those are pretty much your options, right?
1: So hospitals started being built to house those with mental health conditions about 20 years later in the 1770s. But for the majority of people who didn't live in a place with a quote hospital designated to quote care for those with a mental health condition, they were either taken care of by the family or jailed or sometimes both. Now, you can clearly see why either of those things could be significant problems.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And so they yeah, the the family sort of bore the burden, the person got arrested, Maybe the family arrested them. Yeah. And then they later got placed in hospitals where they were chained to walls in the basement. This was a very rough time for neurodiverse individuals. Yes. You know, their best case scenario was probably to just be with their family who didn't really know what to do, but at least they were less likely to just have them be locked in a cage.
1: Right. And the implications are that people were being committed to these hospitals with zero criterion for how they qualified for that placement. So people Which were getting wild. sent away without any reason. It's nuts. I mean, I mean, you can go look in the history of like women in mental health and talk about like hysteria. Yeah. Just because somebody wasn't like pleasing their husband enough. Like that became a significant mental health disorder people get sent away for. Now, but for those of you keeping score, You will also have likely figured out that this meant that our understanding of mental health was lacking to the point of being non-existent. Professionals back then knew as much about mental health as tech people in the 70s knew about the future of the Internet. Literally nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Okay. They largely believed that psychological disorders were just the outputs of physical ailments, like a tumor that could make you sick and eventually kill you. They believed that they were, there were some kind of physiological problems, rather than an experiment, experiential problem that caused these disorders. Now, logically, up until that point, that's far more advanced than when they used to think that like you were engaging in stuff because of demons. Yeah, that's fair. And that probably was
0: still part of it. So
1: it's some advancement.
0: Yeah, that that may contributed to some of those diagnoses. But yeah, just as you were saying, I think if you what what you would not find in a mental health hospital or jail is a wealthy white man. Uh huh. What you might find in a mental health hospital was women and people of color and people who are poor. Yep. Which could include women who are of color. Yep. And so, uh, at least not white. So yes, there's there was a lot of people who were more or less just getting rid of their. Their undesirables, as they might have called them, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, as you just said, they they treated psychological disorders as they had to be manifestations of some kind of physical trauma, right? And it is important to note, like there are a lot of physical things that can be related to the etiology of disorder, such as brain trauma or genes or overall brain chemistry. But environmental factors are hugely, critically, massively important factors in contributing to mental health or deterioration of mental health, and failing to acknowledge that fact has prevent had prevented up to that point the potential for beginning to understand those disorders for a very long time.
1: Yep, absolutely. Now, savvy listeners will also have picked up on the fact that it is ironic that these doctors believe that mental health could be treated quote unquote, with environmental factors without believing they could be caused by environmental factors. So like they, they it's this really interesting thing where, you know, there's not like they're, they're doing environmental things to help resolve it, but they're not looking at the possibility that it was manifested as a result of something environmental. So by implication, there is nothing that could be done in the name of therapy that could cause harm. And that became a unique concern for folks with mental health concerns at that time.
0: Yeah, I mean, just thinking about the fact that If they're basically taking the approach that the only way that you could have a mental health disorder is by experiencing trauma, physical trauma, Mm -hmm. but that they could somehow do something therapeutic that would fix you like a talk therapy or something horrible that they usually were going to do. It's ironic to think that they, the implication is, just as you said, is that it had to be, okay, well, if experiential factors cannot cause these mental disorders, then there's nothing I could do that could cause a mental disorder. So everything that I could do could only help. Yep. Which is amazingly arrogant thing to believe. <laughs> yes. Most definitely. But that's where we were. So further, this really meant in part that a disorder was either something that you were born with and was therefore permanent, or is a physical trauma that you endured and was therefore mostly permanent, although it could be maybe treated with some amount of like medication or beatings of some kind. I don't know. But there really weren't disorders that you mostly could develop. That was just preposterous at the time. So, in the 1910s and 1920s, the American Psychological Association,
1: or APA, was called the American Medico-Psychological Association, and in 1917, it worked with the Census Bureau to use statistical information gathered from mental hospitals, and in 1918, published the Statistical Manual for the Use of Institutions for the Insane. What a wild title for a book.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so these were the first guidelines with an initial stab at definitions and criteria for categorizing mental health conditions and what sort of counted as a quote unquote disorder. This was used primarily for qualifying and categorized patients. And again, it really severely lacked any actual objectivity in terms of how you might make that diagnosis. It was entirely a gut feeling sort of thing.
1: And as these were some of the first quote definitions, they became applied to pretty much everyone in the mental hospital. And it wasn't, that those people actually had those disorders, but they had a label as a disorder so that it could be distinguished as either having a disorder or not. And now this led to a, a lot of different things. We're gonna reference uh, episode 88 on lobotomies as a therapy. And we're also gonna reference episode 109 on deinstitutionalization mental, uh, of mental health patients, because in those situations you had a lot of folks who were identified as having a disorder and were receiving fairly intensive and pretty, pretty awful treatment for what was deemed a disorder, which actually wasn't a disorder.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and they just call it anything. It didn't really matter as long as they could give us some kind of title, then they could justify locking you up and treating you like a prisoner, much worse than a prisoner, even in many of those cases. So yeah, but we're going to move forward. We're soldiering on. So in 1921, the American Medico Psychological Association, they dropped Medico from its name to become the American Psychological Association, the APA, the organization that exists today, more or less. And the APA laid down a sick collab track with the New York Academy of Medicine. And they called this very catchy title the American Medical Association Standard Classified Nomenclature of Disease. Oh. Rolls right off the tongue.
1: Yeah. That is so smooth. Yeah. It's almost as smooth as Donda. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> this is where they started adding the naming conventions in vernacular around psychiatric classifications. This still is not at the DSM, though. This is just. Again, just some guidelines for how you might go about calling people mental health disorder names, thereby justify locking them up or prescribing some sort of treatment for you know whatever.
1: Yeah. So at this point in time, the privileged cisgender straight white men holding the pens, writing the scripts, patted themselves on the back and said, "Well done, lads. Let's go get a drink."
0: And everything was hunky dory until World War II. That's right. So we're going to jump forward a couple of decades here into the 1940s and 1950s. Okay. So we went to the, we're in the 1800s. Then we had the 1910s and 1920s or the 1940s and 1950s. To be fair, World War II, obviously we'd already had World War I just a few decades before. And you might be thinking, well, what was so special about World War II that they would have to start thinking about mental health disorders differently? Well, many of the psychological issues that people dealt with in World War I, they were, of course, similar or the same as as those dealt with in World War 2 But those experiences at the time were sort of written off and just described as shell shock. They were dismissed, meaning that people were their mental health diagnosis that came out of the war was simply a byproduct of the fact that they were traumatized by experiencing things like Being shot at and and their nerves were actually shocked by shells by like grenades and bombs and that sort of thing. That was was the idea. Right. And that's so every mental health condition that came out of of that war was just their nerves frayed by experience to trauma. That was sort of it.
1: Right. And so people experienced some of the most horrific atrocities that were ever committed during this wartime. Rape, torture, fear, sleep deprivation, killing innocent people, starvation, disease, constant discomfort, genocide, the death of friends, communities destroyed, xenophobia, culture shock, betrayal, espionage, and in one case,
0: man-eating sharks. And that's just capitalism in the United States. Then they had to go to war. Ah, (laughs) just kidding. That's obviously war. (laughs) And, you know, it's <laughs> really awful and yeah. a lot of really awful things. So you would imagine that
1: somebody like going to World War II probably had some pretty horrific experiences and might have had some some unique traumas to deal with.
0: Right. So after World War II, they returned home and they were participating in these horrors of war. And I, I use the word participating deliberately here because this was not just something that was happening to them, but things that they often were doing, either at the behest of someone else or just because they were in a situation where it was more or less coerced, the only way, you know, the only strategy of what to do. And so after World War II, their behavior started being recognized as mental health problems. And at the time, this was called combat stress reaction.
1: So the APA realized that there was a need to categorize disorders that could develop out of a reaction to experiences. And there were also five official separate diagnoses or diagnosis classification systems by the 1950s. So people found this to be a huge need. They found this to be something worth analyzing, a phenomenon worth describing, and there were a lot of different attempts to do this. So the APA wasn't the only group of people trying to accomplish this.
0: Right, now there was a a small group of people out of St. Louis, Very specifically. You had uh, Eli Robbins, Samuel Goose, George Winokur, and there was like three or four others that were specifically described. These were a widely diverse group of people that consisted of straight white cisgender men (laughs) (laughs) and no one else. I actually went and Googled, I was like trying to make sure I'm like, how how diverse was this group of people? Oh, okay. It was the sour cream of diversity. They really look like what you would expect out of a group of people at this time. Anyway, not to belittle their contributions, they were really beginning to push for a paradigm shift in diagnosing and treating mental health conditions and specifically avoiding things like etiology. And actually quoting from uh, an article I found on this by Suris et al. In 2006, Quote, this pioneering group set an ambitious goal of developing operationalized diagnostic criteria. In this work, they specifically avoided theoretical assumptions about the etiology of psychiatric illness in an atheoretical and ideologically agnostic approach to defining psychiatric disorders.
1: Ooh, that's a good quote.
0: Yeah. I like that. Should we, you know, we've said we said this a few times. Should we define etiology? Let's define etiology.
1: Uh-huh. We'll So the term etiology for our vocabulary today means the cause, set of causes, or a manner of causation of a disease or a condition. That's the primary definition in medicine. Another definition to include for this would be the investigation or attribution of the cause or reason for something often expressed in terms of historical or mythical explanation. Hmm. I like the medicine term better. (laughs) Basically, what it's telling us is there is a cause. We're looking for the cause of whatever that problem might be.
0: Thanks for the definition, Shane. And as we've sort of described, a lot of this was rooted in the idea of there being some kind of cause. As a matter of fact, a diagnosis more or less had to have a cause in order for it to be a diagnosis. Freud is both the hero and the villain in this, Sigmund Freud, and he's going to come mm-hmm. back up in just a moment. But part of the idea behind this was there was a, a very heavily dominant psychodynamic approach to psychology at the at this time. And so a diagnosis could be described as well, this is your ids, or I don't know, this is your desire for sexual gratification through smoking cigars or something that is in contrast with your. Desires to, I don't know, it was terrible. Anyway, the point being that there was, there was this assumption about how our underlying subconscious was interacting with and interpreting environmental events. And then that was, that was what the diagnosis was, is it was a cause-based diagnosis in a way. Now, at the same time, there was, and as I also said, like everything was rooted in physiology. So, The APA, they'd formed their organization, the APA. They'd written a couple of these diagnostic criteria desk manual things, and uh, they started to look toward the military, which used this 1943 document called the War Department Medical Bulletin 203. Again, catchy title. Catchy. Mm. They're really good at this. And this outlined how mental and behavioral problems could emerge in response to stressful life experiences. And the author of this, this report was a military psychiatrist who, again, was heavily influenced by Freud. Now... This is where Freud actually made a meaningful contribution because the problem of having everything have a cause initially what also came out of his work that influenced this writer was the idea that mental health conditions could be influenced by experiential events things that you actually contact as part of your life experiences which is like legitimate another huge part of it. <laughs> so although people were off on the wrong wrong direction because of Freud, they also got back on track a little bit because of Freud, it seems.
1: So while Freud was pretty was wrong about pretty much everything like the yeah. guy the guy really didn't have a lot of right you know hypotheses he was an early proponent of the idea that childhood and therefore life experiences that were traumatic could be manifested in people's behavior not to discount the brilliant work of pavlov which we're going to talk about in episode 206 or for william james which is a, a forthcoming episode who had been writing about the importance of environmental factors for decades Freud is kind of maybe landing on this a little bit. Now, Freud's theories did inform the development of that war memo, which the APA then directly plagiarized to begin writing the Diagnostic and Statistic manuals. Thus, the first DSM was pretty much Freud-heavy, not a thing that you would ever want to be described as in any context.
0: Exactly. Now, around the time that the APA was working on that first edition of what would become the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, or the DSM, the ICD or the International Classification of Diseases. It was in its sixth edition at the time. It was also starting to include because the name, as the name implies, it really only included medical diseases. Was now starting to include psychological disorders, um, and so the APA decided wisely to include some of the work from the ICD into the development of the first edition of the DSM. And you can see the episode one ten on diagnosing mental health conditions for a description of the ICD how diagnosing is done, and why.
1: So the APA published the first DSM in 1952. Now, it used the term reaction a lot, like a lot, and this, quote, reflected the influence of Adolf Meyer's psychobiological view that mental disorders represented reactions of the personality to psychological, social, and biological factors, end quote. It's from APA 2021. Now, this manual included neurotic, psychotic, character and physiological disorders, which is a new thing for this field at large, right? This is a new way to kind of categorize and understand these types of disorders.
0: Yeah. So in this first edition, this, as I said, was 1950, as you said, was 1952 and included 102 diagnoses that fit into those categories after the publication of the DSM, which was met with mixed reviews, (laughs) some (laughs) psychologists, notably one Erwin Stengel. You don't hear the name Irwin a lot these days.
1: No, nope. no, that's not a that's not a name that comes up very often.
0: <laughs> he pushed for more specific clinical descriptions to aid in a more consistent and objective diagnostic criteria and everyone more or less ignored his recommendations and advice on that, although that angle would eventually be taken. <laughs>
1: Oh, poor Irwin. (laughs) Poor Irwin. (laughs) Poor Irwin. So (laughs) let's move into the 1960s and 70s, where free love became a thing and Vietnam was also a thing. The (laughs) APA published the DSM-2 in 1968, and they decided Roman numerals were the way to go when updating the manual, and they continue to do so to this day. They dropped the word reaction as a primary noun and adjective from the DSM as well, but there weren't any other changes.
0: Yeah, that was pretty much it. They were like, this is a nearly perfect document. Let's, uh, Let's go ahead and just get rid of the word reaction so many times, and then we're, we're should be good to go. And actually, they did not keep Roman numerals forever. That will come up. <laughs> they switched to Arabic numerals in just a moment. But So the, the ICD version 9 was being worked on and eventually published in 1975. Just before that, the APA started working on the DSM-3 in 1974. They actually did publish a new edition of the DSM-2 and there was like, it was the seventh printing of the DSM-2 and they published this in like 1972, I think. And that was where they actually took out the idea of homosexuality as a mental health disorder. That's uh, largely attributed to the DSM-3, but it was like one of the later editions of the DSM-2. So anyway, as I said, they were more or less developing their DSM-3 in coordination and in concert with the ICD-9 that was also being developed around the same time.
1: Now, however, with this with this new edition, they sort of diverged in their paths, like with the, these different works. That because the DSM took a multi-axial approach, and quote. The multi-axial assessment is a system or method of evaluation grounded in the biopsychosocial model of assessment that considers multiple factors in mental health diagnoses. So the DSM is doing this where the ICD-9 did not do this. And that's a pretty significant departure that we have to note.
0: This is really when the DSM was moving away from specific causes as part of their diagnostic criteria and started developing specific diagnostic criteria rather than simply focusing or simply classifying a diagnosis based on exhaustive descriptions. And so what they were doing previous to this is they would say, when someone has this disorder, they do these things, and they would just describe it using endless amounts of text to talk about it. Now they're instead sort of saying what a a disorder is not. So they're saying like, this is not a disorder if it's better accounted for by something else, for example. And also started saying things like it has to have occurred this many times over this period of time and must be at this level of severity. So there are actual sort of criteria now that you could sort of check. The DSM three is largely credited with the removal of the of homosexuality as a mental health disorder. That's because in this the DSM three it was completely absent, and the DSM two, it was present up until the seventh printing. And interestingly, so this is we're now we're in the 70s and 80s. The ICD would not take. Homosexuality out of their disorders as a mental health disorder until 1990 in their 10th edition. Oh, wow. Um, so it took them, yeah, it took them quite a bit longer to make that change. And the APA published the DSM 3 in 1980.
1: All right. So let's talk about 1980 and the 90s. These are wild times. I mean, this is when people had like, this is when hairspray was a thing and like malls became really cool.
0: Yeah. And you've got like jazzercise on TVs and, all the amazing fads in both fashion and music and television were, uh they were coming to fruition. We were we were getting some like real revolutionary changes to sitcoms. Yeah. It was a, a glorious hodgepodge of a mess. Yeah. Did I ever
1: tell you that like the one band I was in, we shared a storage unit with Flock of Seagulls?
0: what no
1: so we used to practice out in orlando and we had this like really open this beautiful storage space that we would be our practice space like the walls were carpeted the floors carpeted there was like a drum riser and a stage and all its equipment in there and it was our band that sounded like converge and flock of seagulls sharing the space together i imagine they did not
0: appreciate that
1: i never knew i just always was curious about whether or not the guy showed up with his hairdo in that for just practice. I wondered yeah. if he just showed walked around like that all the time.
0: They're like these kids today, their music's so. terrible
1: terrible not not like and i run <laughs> so in the 80s and 90s it, it was really convenient for us that the apa worked in a double decade system because we started seeing some new stuff during this time the ap brought about the strategy of releasing a revised version of the dsm a few years after the uh, the original now there were some inconsistencies some unclear definitions and other qualms people had with the dsm3 so a work group produced a revised edition in 1987 lovingly called the dsm three R R for for revised and you'll see that on some like statistic manuals and like assessment manuals and assessment tools as well you'll see that kind of designation on a lot of different things in psychology
0: yeah not rated r although you might you might make that argument too (laughs) yeah that's fair the very first part was actually kind of a joke because i was saying the fact that like we had everything was in this like we had 40s and 50s, 60s and 70s, 80s and 90s, and so it's this double decade system that is, is convenient for us. The APA worked in this sort of double decade system of yeah. of, move, of like we have these updates that's that's staggered across two decades. So yeah, it makes episode research way easier. All right, so we're exactly we're in the we're in the nineteen eighties. By now, even women could get a degree in psychology. I'll have you know. They can they can do psychology, too. (laughs) And there were so many people getting degrees in psychology by this point that the number of people trying to make changes to the DSM practically exploded. I mean, we're at over a thousand professionals and numerous professional organizations that worked together and spent six years developing the next edition of the DSM would become the DSM-IV, Roman numerals IV.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this time, diagnoses were largely informed by the published research to date. So numerous diagnoses were added, removed, changed, regrouped, added to criterion sets, and received greater detailed text descriptions. So this was beautiful because it was a pretty great advancement compared to the previous iterations of this manual. And the APA and the WHO, the World Health Organization, found love with one another again and rekindled that flame to work closely together to coordinate their efforts in writing the icd-10 which was published in 1992 and the dsm-4 which was published in 1994 so these documents can coexist
0: that's right and it's beautiful It was right around the time of like jurassic park and i think alien resurrection maybe or aliens three yeah
1: yeah it was a good it was a good time
0: yeah all right now this version of the dsm the dsm-4 was the first and only time that the <laughs> Asperger's syndrome, Asperger syndrome was included in the diagnostic, as its own diagnostic set. And this version turned out to be the one for a very long time. Whereas most editions seemed like they were being revised somewhat frequently, there's sort of a 10 to 12 year cycle in there, there would not be even one revision to the DSM-IV until the year 2000, six years later, and even then it was still just the DSM-IV. But as I said, this is the first time in 1994 and through the text revision as well, we'll talk about in a moment, that included Asperger's syndrome. It was not there before. And as we'll see, it was not there after.
1: <laughs> yeah. So that moves us into the year 2000. And <laughs> the beyond. distant future. You know, I, th- I thought we were going to have flying cars by then. I-, I was naive. Yeah. Yeah. So the decision was made to avoid changes to the DSM unless they were specifically backed by significant evidence in the research. I like this idea. I think it makes sense. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Now we have more evidence and now these updates are made and such in such a change occurred in 2000 when the DSM four TR was published and largely this included some revision to the wording criteria and definitions, but notably definition of bulimia was adjusted for the binge criteria. And this is something that was really important because like eating disorders became pretty prevalent around this time too.
0: Yeah. So this, as you said, was the text revision of the DSM. This is six years after the dsm four was published. We have the text revision or the TR that became sort of the main one. However, it was not lost on people that there was an astonishingly high rate of comorbidity. I mean, like stupidly high rate and comorbidity, meaning that there were, if there was one diagnosis, then there was usually or often another diagnosis that that person also had. So they had multiple diagnoses, but the overlap was relatively high. One study I found reported as high as 45% of people had a comorbid diagnosis. And one of the things that we talked about in the episode on diagnosing mental health disorders is if if you have a diagnosis and you also have another diagnosis, and almost every time that you have a diagnosis A, you have diagnosis B, there's a very good possibility those diagnoses are part of the same underlying condition, right? or they seem to be representing the same sort of set of circumstances. So it makes sense to sort of rather than have those be two separate things that always happen together is just combine them into a single diagnosis. And sometimes what they would do is they'd say, okay, you have, this is your diagnosis category, and you might have that diagnosis with or without these other symptoms present. And then that was how they would describe it instead. And that would allow it to be more accurate, more reliable. You could have more consistent diagnoses across people, but at the time That was well recognized for the DSM the DSM four and the DSM four text revision or TR. That that was an issue was very high comorbidity.
1: You know, as as we start looking at the evolving, you see that like with every revision, there is something that's influencing why these texts are revo- like revised, right? Yes. Like it's not just like because they want to; it's because there's something new. There's new information that they have to, and they're finding new information with the application of these tools
0: and totally new strategies for how they want to go about making those designations. So, as you said before, there was a lot of theoretical and sort of gut-feeling sort of diagnoses early on in the history of the DSM. By the time that they get to the DSM-3, they're assembling groups of experts to weigh in with their opinions, which is better. Yeah. And then by the time they get to the DSM-4, they're really like, we really just need to be using evidence that's gathered by systematic scientific research to make these classifications, which is better. Yeah. And now we m- now. It even evolved since then. So, yeah, just that there were specific reasons to make those changes that further bolster the empiricism and the validity and reliability of those classification systems.
1: And thus, the DSM-5 started being developed in 2000 with work groups designed to outline the research agenda. So we are moving into an entirely new revision of this or a new, a new manual even so cuz yeah. cuz i think that's an important thing when we number these the dsm 1 to dsm 5 these are separate publications like these aren't revisions to the same diagnostic manual over years and years and years dsm 1 and dsm 2 are separate documents even though they're pretty much the same they're separate documents separate 2 and 3 are separate 4 and 5 they're all separate they're designed to be separate tools
0: and so before we move into the dsm 5 talking about the dsm 4 here so in the 19 19- 94 DSM-4. I meant to say this is we're going along, but there were 297 diagnoses up from. If you recall, the DSM-1 had 102. Uh Uh-huh. The DSM-4TR bumped that number all the way up to 365 diagnoses. So just in that text revision,
1: diagnoses for every day of the year.
0: Exactly. Yes. You've got your tearaway calendar with a diagnosis on it. (laughs) It ramped up tremendously from uh, 94 to 2000 in adding those diagnoses.
1: Yeah, so with this work group that the DSM 5 kind of put together, the work group identified gaps in the research and summarized the state of science with respect to understanding mental health. They single handedly generated hundreds of papers, journal articles, and monographs, and
0: probably dozens of tenured faculty positions as a result of this. This was a huge project. And that was just that work group. In 2007, the APA put together the DSM 5 Task Force, different thing. And this consisted of now not one, not two but 13 work groups because more is always better. That seems unlucky. <laughs> now what were they thinking? <laughs> and uh, and well and, and to compound their dedication to 13, the DSM-5 was published in 2013. <laughs> so That's
1: very like The Dark Tower where it's like 19 keeps showing up. I wonder if 13 is a number in psychology that just shows up all over the place.
0: It's a very special number. And this at this point the DSM dropped their Roman numerals. They went to Arabic numbers. And the DSM-5 is not a V, but just a five. It's the number five. Just the number five. That's it. (laughs) Number five is alive. I wonder if they'll go back to Roman numerals
1: with six. Probably not, right? They're probably going to like dig their heels in with this. There is a six. If there is a six, this might be the one. So... (laughs) As previously mentioned, one of the big problems to tackle in the DSM-5 was the rates of comorbidity. So part of the revisions to the DSM-5 was intended to reclassify and reorganize diagnoses to reduce proportions of comorbidity. One way to do this is to group highly comorbid diagnoses into a single diagnosis. And this occurred almost 30 times in the DSM, and two diagnoses were eliminated altogether. The multi-axial system was removed and 15 were added. So there are a lot of changes to this. This is a pretty hefty revision compared to the, the the four TR.
0: Yes, this this was a big overhaul. So they removed all schizophrenia subtypes. They removed jet lag, which we just talked about recently in a previous episode. Yeah. They removed sexual version disorders, and they also depathologized consenting sexual preferences. So there used to be a diagnosis for certain fetishes and sort of kinky sex, if you will. Yeah, those all were removed as no longer diagnoses from the DSM five.
1: A famously notable change was that the DSM-5 combined the Asperger syndrome diagnoses with the autism spectrum disorder diagnoses. That was a major change because it kind of rippled through the autism community a little bit in some folks still use the term Asperger's, but it was a pretty significant change for a document like this. Now we covered this in episode 24 on what happened to Asperger syndrome. It's definitely worth listening to, but it was a, it was a pretty significant change. One that is often talked about.
0: The DSM-5 also added something that they call Section 3. They went back to the Roman numerals just for this part, not for the, the title. I think maybe they, maybe they max out at 4, and then they're like, eh, go and move away from it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and this, the Section 3 is, quote, for conditions where there is not enough scientific data yet to determine whether they should be classified as psychiatric disorders, end quote. So this is where you get the, I don't want to call it a dumping grounds, but it's like, we don't have enough information yet, but we also don't want to say... You know, we we don't want to miscategorize this as something else, but we also don't have enough information about the specific thing as it presents to call it something specific, which I think is actually kind of useful to have a we don't know category, you know, (laughs) rather than sort of forcing it into a category where it doesn't necessarily apply. And what was also helpful about Section 3 is it added consideration for people of different cultural backgrounds where what something that you might look at as being pathologized from a Westerner perspective might actually not be a pathology if you compare it to the cultural background of the person you're looking at.
1: Now you have the considerations for culture bound syndromes and specific concerns like that. I mean, you can like look at disorders that might not be classified as something else, but there are, and they're fairly rare. Like we talked about lycanthropy, clinical lycanthropy before. Yep. That is something that's like not, doesn't fit into anything, but it is something that happens enough that people are reporting it. So it's kind of an odd thing. Now, the interesting thing about this version too, is that DSM five might also be the last Version. It might be the last thing that we're looking at, specifically because the APA has decided to turn the DSM into a living document. So what that means is, is that as changes or revisions and updates are needed, they will be made entirely digital and an online version of the DSM, rather than waiting 20 years or so for a text to be published, The digital version is going to be available, which makes sense given how science advances, right? It makes sense to have a living document that's maybe updated yearly or annually or something along those lines. Yeah. Now, this didn't occur immediately with the publication of the DSM, but it's a project in progress at the APA. So this is something that we may still see in, in coming years.
0: Yeah, they've been working on updating and turning this into a digital living document and they've actually they've made a lot of strides toward this. They're they're now in a place where for some of those diagnoses, they're online now. They're completely online and if there are changes or revisions that need to be made, then they occur Within six months or less, sometimes as long as a year, but yeah, it's not the, well, this is something new that we learned this year. Let's see what happens in 20 years and then we'll maybe publish a book about it. Right. And so that it allows them to be a little bit more flexible. Now, I think that could potentially give rise to adding and removing diagnoses relatively quickly as sort of cultural things shift and change in this country. But I think that it more or less is a good thing because, again, it does allow for changes that come with considerations and new research and evidence to happen a lot more quickly. So it's like if we have something in there that pathologizes normal human experience, like just using the homosexuality as an example, mm-hmm. then rather than wait 10 to 20 years to change that, then they can go and say, you know what, this is, this is something that we need to fix now. We'll make that change. And then the, the living document that it becomes reflects that change Yeah, there may not be a sixth version of the DSM because from here on out, it's just going to be uh, a continuously updated document that everyone has access to that has access to the Internet, I should say.
1: I think that's pretty fascinating. I think and I think that makes sense. I think it makes sense given like with new information you would update things like I imagine that there's probably going to be significant changes to like transgender dysphoria disorder and stuff like that as new information about gender studies kind of begins to arise. I think that that's going to be I I imagine we'll probably see a lot of changes in that realm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, there still might be another published DSM book at some point, maybe. But for now, the effort seems to really be on focused on building that online system it also don't know whether if they do publish it, they're going to go back to Roman numerals or stick with the <laughs> Arabic numbers. Not sure. But yeah, so that's, as I said, with it being the sort of online version and having sort of a digital update happening on a, on a more frequent basis, I actually wonder personally whether they're just going to drop the the numbering system altogether and just say, this is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual website. Welcome, one and all.
1: Yeah, exactly. I I imagine there's probably gonna be something similar to that. So one thing we wanna emphasize here is that the DSM is not used globally. In fact, it may be confusing because there are actually two systems for diagnosing mental disorders, right? So the important thing to remember is that the DSM-5 is primarily used in the United States, while the ICD, the International Statistical Classification of Diseases, is used internationally. Makes sense, right? And both of them are used for insurance coding purposes for different reasons, but those are two different documents that exist so please know that as we go forward.
0: Actually, I had some people I work with recently who, um, as part of their intake, with their their documentation for diagnoses, used the ICD diagnoses. I was uh, I was surprised because I hadn't actually seen that show up in any documents. I always see the hmm. DSM codes, so I thought that was interesting.
1: That's fascinating. I like that.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. Uh, some kind of interesting information here on just the number, as we said. I'll list through the different diagnoses and the different versions. So in the DSM-1 published in 1952, there were 102 diagnoses. So the DSM-2 was released in 1968 and had 182 diagnoses. DSM-3 in 1980 contained 265 diagnoses. And
1: the Pirates version of the DSM-3, the (laughs) DSM-3-R, was published in 1987 and had 292 diagnoses.
0: Lovely. And the <laughs> DSM IV, this is the intravenous version, the DSM IV, published in 1994. This contains 297 diagnoses, so just up five from the edition before. Yes. Also,
1: this is the same decade that Biodome came out in 1994. <laughs> oh, so, no. <laughs> yeah. Think about that for a minute. It explains everything. It does, really. It's a weird it was a weird time. The 90s were very strange. DSM IV TR came out in 2000 and had
0: 365 diagnoses. This so where you get your ripoff calendar. Uh-huh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, for the DSM-2, they could have done one like every other day was a new one because they were really close. To yeah, they were so close. The DSM-5 was published in 2013. This actually dropped all the way down to 157 diagnoses when they were regrouped everything. This is the second lowest in number of diagnoses of all the editions that have existed. So these regrouping subtypes, Section 3, all that sort of stuff, This one, uh, this one dropped down considerably.
1: I think it makes sense. Like it ha- it makes sense having like general categories and subcategories and that I think having stuff folded into stuff to prevent those comorbidities makes perfect sense.
0: I agree. Actually, I think I I think this was more or less a good move. There are plenty of things, I think, to be critical about in diagnostic systems as they occur. But I think ultimately it is moved in a generally better direction over time. And I, I am optimistic that it will continue to do so. And particularly, I think, as they are considering the various experiences that occur and and using like the ICD to help inform this and considering other cultures, I think is a good move. Totally agree. A couple of take home points on this. I think one that I would say is just that we as a people have had mental health disorders or neurodiversity as long as there have been people. And that's ultimately a good thing. I think that the intention to classify these probably came from a little bit of an, if not extremely, an ableist perspective, but it nevertheless had some benefits for doing so. You know, this was uh, it allowed people to potentially prescribe treatments to potentially have some idea of prognosis. I mean, it didn't really start there, but ultimately a classification system could be used in that way, which this one was. So that's one of my taken points, I guess, is just that this was an attempt to classify people that has had a, a storied history over the last 70 years or so
1: yeah absolutely my major take-home point too is that this i think is evidence of a an applied science Evolving in real time, right? Like you've got a a a diagnostic classification, you've got a criteria, and you've got this like this tool that's used and continually advancing as science advances. And whether or not you like, I mean, there's so many people that kind of get into the idea that like psychology is a soft science and all that, but it's still science that is still studied, and there are still studies that come out that demonstrate X, Y, and Z. And so having a document to demonstrate and kind of show. In a public way, hey, things are changing. We are moving. We are advancing. These revisions are necessary. I think it's really good for the scientific like the scientist community. Like I think like having like when you talk about scientific literacy and like the community at large, I think it's a, there's a benefit there.
0: and I think that although it certainly did sort of pathologize normal human experience for a lot of people for a long time, what it also has done is it created groups of protected classes, people who can and should receive a sort of higher level of priority and care because they're more at risk. And so I, I don't think that that is necessarily always an implication of systems like these, but i like to believe that this, the development of these classifications, these groups in this document have more or less created the opportunity to define protected classes that can enable and protect the rights of individuals who might otherwise be disabused of those rights. And so I think that that ultimately could be a good thing. Now, whether that happens in practice is another discussion, but I think it has for some people worked that way in certain capacities.
1: I think the last thing I would say about this is that this is not an end all be all. So I think that sometimes what will happen is somebody will get a diagnosis and we talked about this earlier where somebody would get a diagnosis and from, but they had it and they had it forever. It never went away. That's not always the case. And and now that with the evolution of this tool, we see people who have diagnoses that it might change or evolve with new information, with new circumstances. And I think that's something that's pretty beautiful about this too. It's like, it's not like a, uh, a death sentence. Or something that's like a, like something that you're going to be like pegged with and it stays with you forever. Like your diagnosis can change based on new information.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And ultimately, as you said, I think this is probably a good thing. You know, I think that this, uh, that, that can be helpful. So I don't think I have any other take home points. Neither do I. Perfect. All right. Well, let's move into some recommendations then. Yay. Yay.
1: So, my recommendation this week is a little thing that I find a lot of joy in, and it's a nectarine. So, <laughs> I am uh, somebody who doesn't eat a lot of fruit. You know, I grew up not being able to have a lot of fruit in my house. So, we just didn't have, we didn't have access to a lot of this stuff growing up, except for uh, Japanese plums. I always had Japanese plums or loquats in my neighborhood. It was just in a tree in our front yard. I don't know if you've ever had a loquat, but they're very tangy.
0: I don't think I have.
1: They're wild. I mean, they were very sticky because, like, the squirrels would eat them, and they would drop the seeds into the yard, and it was like they were like a like. But they're look they're like these little yellow. They look like yellow plums huh. or like unripe kiwis. and They're like real yellow, and you eat them, and they're very sweet. So like anyway, gooseberry. that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about nectarines. Okay, so nectarines are if you've never had one, the best tasting fruit, <laughs> and they are the best smelling fruit. I love the way peaches smell. I love the way apples smell. But there's just something about like the 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 citrusy clean that goes along with a, a nectarine. So if you can get your hands on some this weekend, enjoy yourself because uh, it is just a, a delight to have them.
0: That is awesome. I love that recommendation.
1: <laughs> it's so good. Be careful of the pit, though. They have pits like peaches.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, nectarines are very good. I'm a fan of fruit personally, so. I like the recommendation. <laughs> I am recommending this week a movie called Bad Samaritan. This came out in 2018. This has got Daniel Tenet and a few other names of people who are not so well-known celebrity types. But the three most main people are from Ireland and Scotland. Okay, One of them is doing an American accent pretty well, except when he's yelling. I <laughs> don't seem to notice it for the most part. This is in the cross between horror and mystery like murder mystery type so there's not much of like you know who who the perpetrator is what you really don't know is sort of how they're going to like how it's going to shake out with this person not having law enforcement like having the law enforcement essentially be on the the path of the wrong person for a while okay anyway i enjoyed it I don't want to spoil anything about it. (laughs) That works. Yeah, because it's like I said, there's a lot of mystery involved in here, but I think it was well done. I liked the acting. I liked the story. It kept I found it very engaging. So that's my recommendation. It's available on on some streaming platforms right now. I don't remember which, but probably like Hulu or Amazon or something. Just uh, if you look for it, then Bad Samaritan is my recommendation. If you're into that sort of thing. I like it. All right, before we go, I'd like to say thank you to the awesome people who will support us on Patreon. This includes Amanda, Justine, Layla, Megan, Mike, M, Mike, T, and Shauna. Thank you also to the people who make this podcast happen. Our amazing audio producer and engineer and good sound maker, Justin. <laughs> the person who does our social media things is Amber, although Shane and Selena are also in on that. Thank you, Shane, for your help with episodes and thank you for recording with me today. Thank you, Selena, for all the amazing work you do. Kyle and Alan, who are also um, have their major contributions uh, on various tasks. So I appreciate the Mm -hmm. whole team. Thank you very much. You listener who has my voice still streaming into your ears at this point. If you haven't skipped and stopped this episode, thank you so much for listening and making it all the way to the end. We appreciate you. For sure. All right. I think that's all I have. You have anything else?
1: Nope. Besides thanking you for hosting the show because you deserve kudos as well. Hey, thanks.
0: <laughs> yeah, anytime. All right perfect. well then this is Abraham and it's Shane. We're out. See ya.
2: You've been listening to why we do what we do. Why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreoncom wwdwwdpodcast You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at www.wwdpodcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at NogDesigns.com video and production assistance from Tyler Versier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.